Okay. Well, I just cut short that episode on the podcast index because we have unfinished business here with Wolfram. And um, this has not let me alone. It has not let me sleep. I am completely obsessed with this right now. So we're going to ride the wave. We're going to ride this out and see where it takes us. So um, I'm just trying to find the spot where we left off yesterday. <clears throat> and then we're going to continue clipping Wolfram and discussing him. Now, I want to give you an update, and I think I can do that on this episode. I can give you an update on my Haskell stuff. Yeah, so I've gotten it down to where I can process one of the JSON files that I produced, I guess, two years ago. And get through it. Parse the JSON and create these Haskell objects. So now I have an array of statements that describe that file that I was working on. And now I just pasted that output, which is Haskell, using the print statement, into a new file and try to compile those 10 megabytes. And the compiler is just choking on it. It's just choking. So we see that Haskell as a language is not really happy with this humongous amount of data we're going to actually need a smaller lighter version of Haskell to uh, <clears throat> to feed in massive amounts of data in that form like it can read the JSON file quickly but it can't actually compile 10 megabytes of source code in one file, it's just crashing. So, what I'm trying to do is I want to create a cut-down vocabulary for what's just needed and simplify it some more. Um, but I want to do so without... I want to do so without having to... Uh, run the JSON over and over again. And really, I suppose what I'm looking for are examples. <clears throat> so, what if I were to remove values from the nodes and just look at the structure? So I would filter the output um, and emit just the unique uh, structures. So if I map, if I map reduce the data and say, hey, say, hey, we have a, um,
identifier node and we have these fields we have a string but I don't have the string value itself so I abstract it remove the values just keep the keys and then convert that to a string and put it to a dictionary and only print out the first example of those of the ones that occur <clears throat> that could give us some type information about which ones are actually used <clears throat> another way to do it would be to create some function that takes the resulting object and just over specify it but the thing is is that if you over so this is why I wanted to have it in, in Haskell <clears throat> if I have the uh, function calls in JSON it's just gonna produce a runtime error and crash if I have this stuff in Haskell it's gonna give me a compile error So really I need to start by creating examples of each of the different types of things um, and compile them. And that's going to be the start of my specification. Alright. Hey guys. So yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go uh, and try that out. Yeah, and then the next thing is, once you have a um, these examples, then you want to see how they connect with each other. So I'm thinking maybe there's got to be a faster way to do this. And it just really might be the size of the file might be running out of memory. I have to actually analyze why um, this thing is running so horribly. I guess if I uh, split up things into chunks and compile them individually, it would be better. And that's what I want to do. I want to have chunks of data. How's it going? All right. Okay, well that's enough blathering, but I need to get this out of my system and, uh, you know, who else am I going to talk to about this, really? Except my non-listeners. My... My patient listeners. I mean, look, yesterday's episode had two listens. Probably my dad listened to it for 10 seconds. And it seems like Anchor.fm has someone listening to my podcast immediately after it shows up. I don't know how that happens. But uh, I have a feeling it's not a person. Not a normal listener, anyway.
the timing is just off. Like, as soon as I hit save, it has one listen. It's like, how the hell does that happen? So, anyway. We will continue. So, <clears throat> there's a next clip. We're going to pick up where we left off, talking about, he's trying to introduce time, and he's saying that certain things don't matter in what order they're being done. And uh, he's going to also say that um, space and time are not connected as we so I'll see them, you know, with our space-time as being four-dimensionals. He's saying those are, that's the wrong way to look at it, which is a shift. <clears throat> and um, so basically... I was thinking in terms of a time traveler or well let's just say if you were to go back in time and do everything that you did in your life again but do it slightly differently but the results would be the same for everybody else let's say you were to go back and um, just be more observant. I don't know. Right? But it wouldn't actually change what you did. I guess that would... If everything lined up... Then the ca uh, causal... Things that caused each other would line up. It doesn't matter in what order you do things, if the time is linear. Because I guess what he's trying to say is that when you're far enough away from each other, um, light takes a long time to get there. So even if things are happening at the same time on different stars in different places, it's going to take a while for that message to travel between the stars, let's say. Um, and I guess it really doesn't matter. Hundreds of light, millions of light years um, away, the amount of information that's being tra transferred is very little. There's a lot of loss there. So, kind of weird think about that I'm not sure if it even applies well anyway enough of my blathering let's play this clip yeah so imagine that well let's talk about it in terms of math for a second let's say you're doing algebra and you're told you know multiply out this series of polynomials that are that are multiplied together okay you say well which order should I do that in Say, well, do I multiply the third one by the fourth one and then do it by the first one? Or do I do the fifth one by the sixth one and then do that? Well, it turns out 
it doesn't matter. You can you can multiply them out in any order. You always get the same answer. That's a that's a, a property. If you think about kind of making a kind of network that represents in what order you do things, you'll get different orders for different ways of multiplying things out, but you'll always get the same answer. Same thing if you let's say you're sorting. You've got a bunch of A's and B's. They're in random some random order. You know B A A B B B A A whatever, and you have a little rule that says. Every time you see BA, flip it around to AB, okay? Eventually, you apply that rule enough times, you'll have sorted the string so that it's all the A's first and then all the B's. Again, you, there are many different orders in which you can do that, that um, many different sort of places where you can apply that update. In the end, you'll always get the string sorted the same way. I know, I know with sorting a string, it's, it sounds obvious. That's to me surprising that that there is in complicated systems, obviously with a, with a string, but in a, in a hypergraph that the application of the rule, as, asynchronous rule can lead to the same results sometimes. Yes, yes, that is, it is not obvious. And it was something that, um, you know, I, I sort of discovered that idea for these kinds of systems and back in the 1990s. And for various reasons, I, 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 was, not, I was not satisfied by how sort of fragile finding that particular property was. And let me, let me just make another point, which is that, that it turns out that even if the underlying rule does not have this property of causal invariance, it can turn out that every observation made by observers of the rule, can they can impose what amounts to causal invariance on the rule. We can explain that. It's a little bit more complicated. I mean, technically, that has to do with this idea of completions, which is something that comes up in term rewriting systems, automated theorem proving systems, and so on. But that, let's, let's ignore that for a second. We'll, we can come to that later. But Is it useful to talk about observation? Not yet. Point? Not yet. Okay. It's, so you know, so the, great. The, so there's some concept of causal invariance. As uh, you apply these rules in an asynchronous way, you can think of those transformations as events. So there's this hypergraph that represents space and all of these events happening in the space and the graph grows in interesting, complicated ways. And eventually, the froth arises to of uh, of what we experience as human existence. <laughs> so that's that's, what, it. that's, what, the, that's some version of the picture. But but let's explain what, a little bit yeah, more. Like, exactly. Of, uh, What's a little a little more detail? Like right. Well, so so one thing that is sort of surprising in this in this theory is one of the sort of achievements of twentieth century physics was kind of bringing space and time together. That was you know special relativity. People talk about space time this sort of unified thing where space and time kind of are mixed. And there's a nice mathematical formalism um, that uh, in which, you know, space and time sort of appear as part of the space-time continuum, the space-time, you know, four vectors and things like this. Um, you know, we talk about time as the fourth dimension and all these kinds of things. It's, you know, the, and, and it seems like the theory of relativity sort of says space and time are fundamentally the same kind of thing. So one of the things that took a while to understand in, in this approach of mine is that uh, in, in, in my kind of approach, space and time are really not fundamentally the same kind of thing. Space is the extension of this hypergraph. Time is the kind of progress of this inexorable computation of these rules getting applied to the hypergraph. So it's, they seem like very different kinds of things. And, and so that... Okay. Now this next clip is quite needy. And it would be best to be visualized. And when I, he's talking about this, I'm thinking about the visualization where 
you know, if you have a whole bunch of B's followed by a whole bunch of A's, and at the top of the page, and at the bottom of the page, you have the reverse where A comes after B. So they're going to be all flipped. And if you draw out all the possible um, flipping steps into a graph, and which ones would depend on which ones, um, there might be, I don't know, a couple hundred layers. And eventually they're all going to be sorted. Um, it doesn't matter. I, th I guess it doesn't matter uh, what order you do them in. You're just traversing down that graph. Um, I'm not able to describe this very well. But I have an intuition on it. And... Um, <clears throat> I'm also thinking about my Haskell question from earlier, and I think I have an idea. It's funny how listening to Wolfram is really inspiring me. So, uh, basically, um, basically the idea is that I would create um, a set of constructors without with the, with variables for the values, but a set of constructors for all the different morphisms found in the system. And that would um, so I have a new data type. And that new data type, let's call it the types of data found in this project. And then I would um, list out all the morphisms there. But I wouldn't include any details. And that would be the first layer. And then I could check everything against that. Um, <clears throat> So I wouldn't need all the data. So I wouldn't need those 10 megabytes of, uh, of data. I would just condense it to its um, essence. Now, the next step the next step would be to know what are the relationships these morphisms so like something with this form how is it related to something in that form so um, I suppose that could also be encoded into a new layer um, continue encoding these layers until we have these humongous chains of types. All right then. So it's they seem like very different kinds of things. And and so that at first 
seems like, how can that possibly be right? How can that possibly be Lorentz invariant? That's the term for things being, you know, following the, the rules of special relativity. Well, it turns out that when you have causal invariance, that, and let's see, we can, it's worth, it's worth explaining a little bit how this works. It's a little bit, little bit elaborate, but, but the basic point is that um, uh, the, even though space and time sort of come from very different places, it turns out that the rules of sort of space-time that special relativity talks about um, come out of this model when you're looking at large enough systems. Mm-hmm. So, so a way to think about this, uh, you know, in terms of the, when you're looking at large enough systems, um, the uh, part of that story is when you look at some fluid like water, for example, there are equations that govern the flow of water. Um, those equations are th- things that apply on a large scale. If you look at the individual molecules, they don't know anything about those equations. It's just the, the, the sort of the large scale effect of those molecules turns out to follow those equations. And it's the same kind of thing happening in our models. I, I know this might be a, a small point, but it might be a very big one. We've been talking about space and time at the lowest level of the model which is space, the hypergraph, time is the evolution of this hypergraph. Mm-hmm. But there's also space-time that we think about in general relativity for special relativity. Like what, how does, how do you go from the uh, lowest source code of space and time that we're talking about to the more traditional terminology of space yeah, and time? Yeah, right, so, so the, the key thing is this thing we call the causal graph. So the causal graph is the graph of causal relationships between events. So every one of these little updating events, every one of these little transformations of the hypergraph happens somewhere in the hypergraph, happens at some stage in the computation. That's an event. That event is, has a causal relationship to other events in the sense that if, the, if another event needs as its input the output from the first event, there will be a causal relationship of the the, the future event will depend on the past event. Mm-hmm. So you can say it's, it has a causal connection. And so you can make this graph of causal relationships between events. That graph of causal relationships, causal invariance, implies that that graph is unique. It doesn't matter, even though you think, oh, I'm, I'm you know, let's say we were sorting a string, for example. I did that particular transposition of, of characters at this time, and then I did that one, then I did this one. Turns out if you look at the network of, of connections between those updating events, that network is the same. It's, it's the, if- and now in this next short clip, he's going to spell it out for us. That it doesn't matter in what order you do the operation because the dependency graph, the causal graph, will be um, the same, like ordering them, ordering operations over time doesn't matter which order you pick, now this is for, you know, applying rules, only um, when a rule is finished to be applied can the next one be applied on top of it. And that creates a graph. Now, I was talking about these types, and this does fit in. Because when a type is finished, let's say we have a 
fundamental Lego block. And once that's placed, something else can be placed on top of it. So, if I create a rule system that will take the leaf nodes and roll them up into bigger and bigger structures, eventually we create programs. It doesn't matter in what order am I rolling them up. The program can only be finished when all of its dependencies are fulfilled. Now, when we get into infinite recursion in the type system, that's where we're going to construct the rules to eliminate these loops. To mark them as special I'm, I'm hoping we can mark them as special uh, edges which won't be traversed so this is kind of getting into the girdle thing it's like well what if something is referencing to itself it's like we have a field and the field has a type and the type is the type of the struct and that struct has a field and that field has a type, and the type of that field is a struct. Right? Well, it turns out that that's almost like a linked list or a tree structure. And the structs are not actually the same structs, they're different instances. And a lot of times it's never the same exact struct but it could be. It could actually come back to the integer has a uh, size and the size is a type and the type is an int. So we're right back to where we started. Like that was the first thing that I discovered when I was looking into the compiler. It's like, shit, we got these loops. So, <clears throat> so what we're going to do is we're going to think about that some more with these caus causal types and um, well, we can definitely mark these recursions with some kind of special thing because we know where they are. We can detect them. And what if I just block it and I create a special type of recursion? It's like this is recursive to containing type. This is recursive to containing struct. This is recursive up three levels, and then just stop there and mark it as such. So we don't get caught in that trap. If we want to look at recursion, we'll have to um, do it explicitly.
Okay. Well, there are definitely some... There are definitely some parallelisms between, you know, processing the graphs of the compiler and processing the graphs of reality that Wolfram's doing. So, um... I wonder if he's ever going to get into this recursion. Mm -hmm. So you can say it's it has a causal connection. And so you can make this graph of causal relationships between events. That graph of causal relationships, causal invariance, implies that that graph is unique. It doesn't matter, even though you think, oh, I'm I'm you know, let's say we were sorting a string, for example. I did that particular transposition of of characters at this time, and then I did that one, then I did this one. Turns out if you look at the network of of connections between those updating events, that network is the same. It's it's the if if you were to I see. Yeah. Uh, the 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 structure. So in other words, if you were to draw that that if you were to put that network on a picture of where you're doing all the updating, the places where you put the the nodes of the network will be different, but the way the nodes are connected will always be the same. So, the, but the causal graph is a. Is I don't want. It's kind of an observation. It, it's not uh, enforced. It's just emergent from well, a set of it's, events. Well, it's a it's a feature well, it's, of of okay. So what it is a characteristic, is, I guess, of right, the it, way events happen. Right. It's an event can't happen until its input is ready. Right. And so that creates this this network of causal relationships, and that's that's the that's causal graph. And the thing that the next thing to realize is okay. Okay. So now we're going to get into. Is there just one read-write head on the Turing machine updating the universe? And he's like, well, I won't know if you're updated until I'm updated. Meaning, my personal update, it doesn't matter in what order it happens. Because I won't get updated until you're updated. Or I won't be updated, I mean... I won't be updated until all the things that come before me have been done. And it really doesn't matter at what time that happens. Because there's a, <laughs> there's a dependency graph between everything. So that's a pretty crazy idea. But we're going to think about that some more. Um, so just get rid of time. Well, and just say, hey, um, you know, I could just focus and update everything on this side of the universe first. And if there's no, if there's no interdependence between one side of the universe and the other, except the light, they could be completely out of sync. I mean, I think that's kind of what we're getting to here. things could get really out of whack if they're far enough apart. Right? I mean, <clears throat> let's say you live 100 years or 200 years. If you live a long time. But it takes 100 million years for your light to reach another planet. Right? your message. So it really doesn't matter what you do. You're not going to get a response from that other planet. Right? Not at light speed. 
I mean, there's basically nothing that you can do. I guess if you started sending radio waves, that could make a difference millions of years in the future. But you won't live to see that. So your whole life could be evaluated independently of the life of those that other planet. Yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. It's pretty crazy. There's, okay, we, when you're going to observe what happens in the universe, you have to sort of make sense of this causal graph. So, and you are an observer who yourself is part of this causal graph. And so that means, so let me give you an example of, of how that works. So, so imagine we have a really weird theory of physics of the world where it says th this updating process, there's only going to be one update at every moment in time. And it's just going to be like a Turing machine. It has a little head that runs around and just is always just updating one thing at a time. So you say, you know, I have a theory of physics and the theory of physics says there's just this one little place where things get updated. You say that's completely crazy because, you know, it's plainly obvious that things are being updated sort of, you know, at the same time. But the fact is that the thing is that if I'm, you know, talking to you and you seem to be being updated as I'm being updated, but but if there's just this one little head that's running around updating things, I will not know whether you've been updated or not until I'm updated. So in other words, right. when you draw this causal graph of the causal relationship between the updatings in you and the updatings in me, it'll still be the same causal graph, whether even though the underlying sort of story of what happens is, oh, there's just this one little thing and it goes and updates in different places in the universe. So is that, is that clear or is that a hypothesis? Is that, that is that clear that there's a unique causal graph? Uh, if there's causal invariance, there's a unique causal graph. That's so, we, the, so it's okay to think of what we're talking about as a hypergraph and the operations on it as a kind of Turing machine with a single head, like a single guy running around updating stuff. Um, is that safe to intuitively think of it this way? Um, let me think about that for a second. Yes, I think so. I think that I think there's nothing. It doesn't matter. I mean, you you can you can say. Okay, there is one, the reason I'm pausing for a second is that um, I'm wondering, well, when you say running around, depends how far it jumps every time it runs around. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. right. But it, I it, mean, like, one operation at <laughs> Yeah, you can think of it as one time, operation at It's easier for the human brain to think of it that way as opposed to... Uh, well, maybe it's, it's not, okay, but the thing is, that's not how we experience the world. What we experience is we look around everything seems to be happening at successive moments in time everywhere in space. Yes. That is the, um, and that's partly a feature. Of yeah, so in this next clip, Lex has a moment of <clears throat> lucidity and absurdity and kind of reflects over what's happening at this moment. And Stephen doesn't get the update. So Stephen's stuck on his causal graphs and he's just like, right, 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 let's get back to causal graphs. Because that's how he thinks he's acting like an autistic person. Um, and he completely skips over what Lex is talking about. Maybe he's not just prepared for that update. But um, 
I'm just wondering if there's loops in these causal graphs. I mean, this might be nice and easy. What uh, what he's talking about, but what happens when you get the self-referential loops? What if Girdle comes and eats your uh, hypergraph? You know, the monster comes through the window, right? Like, what's going to happen to you then, Wolfram? We gotta, we really got to uh, deconstruct this whole thing because. I don't like the way he's reacting to Lex's comment at all. Imagine the absurdity of the fact that there's two descendants of apes modeled by a hypergraph that are communicating with each other and experiencing this whole thing yes. as a real-time simultaneous update with, uh, I'm taking in photons from you right now, but there's something much, much deeper going on right here. It, it does have a... It's paralyzing sometimes to just yes, to remember right. that. Right. No, I mean, you know, but, but so, you know, I, yes, yes. No, as, I, I as mean, a I, small little tangent, I, I just right. remembered that we're talking about, I mean, this, that about the fabric of reality. Right. So we've, we've got this causal graph that represents the sort of causal relationships between all these events in the universe. Yeah. That causal graph kind of is a representation of space time, but our experience of it. Yeah, I think this is where I'm going to just make a little tangent as well um, <clears throat> first of all let's just say go back to our example where you have a field that points to a tree and a tree that has a field that points back to itself okay so you have a let's just say you have a linked list and the linked list points to a linked list right like even the simplest type of recursive data structure um, well this kind of gets into the time perspective because over time you could keep on going traversing that list infinitely um, and every node will be and the causal structure will be attached to the previous node you don't know when it's going to end could assume that it does end eventually we don't know um, you could get into bigger and bigger loops but uh, if I have these um, things going from bottom up they said well okay this would be a simple loop but let's just say that I'm going bottom up I'm transforming these graphs, and if time doesn't matter, how do I deal with a recursive structure? Like, well, what if I uh, reach the field first, and I attach the type underneath it, which doesn't have that field attached, and then, finally, I try and attach the type, um, the field to the type, but I find that I'm going to enter a recursion. So the causal, the order will matter in recursion because I will get one before the other. And I suppose I could graph this out and catch those. Um, as two different entry points to the recursion. 
one is from the field level and one is from the type level adding the field um, but to, to say that they're truly uh, in, that it doesn't matter what what order we do this in um, that doesn't make sense to me. So, uh, we're going to have to, uh, to think about this some more and, and I'm going to try it out. I'm going to try this out and see what happens. Boy, I feel happy, uh, doing my, uh, look at these guys doing golf over here. And my chosen sport is so much simpler. I just need a pair of shoes. And from a podcast walker, okay, I need a podcasting device. So I guess that's my phone. I need an internet plan. Yeah, I guess if we get into some kind of self-referential self-referential I'll stay off the golf course in the evening I don't want to disturb the uh, people in the country club always got to give people their safe space in their country club <clears throat> if we get in self-referentiality um, we talk about Like Lex was describing himself and describing him talking to him, and he was trying to reference himself, but uh, Stephen didn't pick up on that reference. The real answer would be him to reflect back and say, yes, I'm seeing myself, and I see you seeing me, and they get into that type of... uh, infinite loop let's say the mirror the infinite mirror happening uh, but he didn't he didn't pick up on it I thought that was a real shame a real uh, I know that if it was on the um, if it was on the Joe Rogan show he would definitely have a different response to that so that was kind of weird Yep. We're going to have to put all this stuff to the test. And I'm really kind of skeptical. I mean, maybe he's just trying to sell the software and sell pretty graphs. Because he says it's open. But is it really open? Can we actually do it? Or do we need to buy a software? I mean, I wonder how many people have reproduced what this guy is doing. Like, it seems to me to be a challenge to be able to execute any of this stuff outside of the Wolf Ranch system.
So, but it has me intrigued. It definitely has me intrigued. Let's look at it like a Minecraft game to play. You know? He's setting up these rules. And, um... But, I don't know. I just have the feeling... I just have the feeling that something's going to uh, break eventually on this model. Let's find out. Okay, so Lex is going to try and wrangle this thing. And he's like, well, if I have all these, what rules are we going to pick? And how do we evaluate them? Because there's so many infinite numbers. It's like, well, we're trying to find rules that will kind of map onto known physics. So, <clears throat> maybe we can create rules that will generate known um, structures, tree structures. Like, can we create a set of rules that will generate the structures that we need? Like a skeleton? Questions, but, you know, there's an infinity number of possible rules. So we have to look for rules that uh, that create the kind of structures that are, that are reminiscent for uh, that have echoes of the different physics theories yes. in them. So what kind of rules? Is there something simple to be said about the kind of rules that you have found beautiful that you have found powerful? Right. So so I mean, what you know, one of the features of computational irreducibility is. It's very, you, you can't say in advance what's going to happen with any particular, you can't say, I'm going to pick these rules from this part of rule space, so to speak, because they're going to be the ones that are going to work. That's, you can make some statements along those lines, but you can't generally say that. Now, you know, the state of what we've been able to do is, you know, different properties of the universe, like dimensionality, you know, integer dimensionality, features of, of other features of, of quantum mechanics, things like that. At this point, what we've got is we've got rules that, that uh, any one of those features, we can get a rule that has that feature. Um, so, yeah, so the we don't have the, the sort of the final, here's a rule which has all of these features. Yeah. We do not have that yet. So, so if I were to try to summarize the Wolfram Physics Project, which is uh, you know something that's been in your brain for a long time, but really has just exploded in activity, you know, only just months ago. Yes. Uh, so it's an evolving thing, and it, next week you know, I'll try to publish this conversation as quickly as possible, because by the time it's published, already new things will probably have come out. So, uh, so, so if I were to summarize it, we've talked about the basics of there's a hypergraph that represents space. There is uh, transformations on that hypergraph that represents um, time. The progress of time. The progress of time. There's a causal graph that's a characteristic of this. And the basic process of science, of, yeah, of science within the Wolfram physics model is to try different rules and see which properties of physics that we know of known physical theories are appear within the graphs there. So here's a surprise from Wolfram. He's like, nope, that's wrong. Um, he's saying we can derive relativity from this system. We don't even need to just generate random rules. 
to do it. So, wow, that's pretty crazy. The graphs that emerged from that rule. That's what I thought it was going to be. Uh-oh, okay. The, so what, <laughs> the, so what it is it? It turns out we can do a lot better than that. It turns out that using kind of mathematical ideas, we can say, and computational ideas, we can, we can make general statements. And those general statements turn out to correspond to things that we know from 20th century physics. In other words, the idea of you just try a bunch of rules and see what they do, that's what I thought we were gonna to have to do. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in fact, we can say, given causal invariance and computational irreducibility, we can derive, and this is where it gets really pretty interesting, we can derive special relativity, we can derive general relativity, we can derive quantum mechanics. And that's where things really start to get exciting is, you know, it wasn't at all obvious to me that even if we were completely correct, and even if we had, you know, this is the rule, you know, even if we found the rule to be able to say, yes, it corresponds to things we already know, I did not expect that to be the case. And okay, people, we are done for today. More tomorrow. <laughs>